Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week, we're going to review 2. The online crowd hasn't been too happy with our podcast lately. Can't blame them. They want new material. Our stuff's been repeated too many times. You can't sell the same thing to the same old crowd forever. It's no big deal. We just need to go away. Just dream it all up again, again, again. Innocence to experience, move with us in mysterious ways. The next stop will be Zoo Station. All change at Zoo Station. So we're back in the Review Studio with a brand new season. And, you know, the end of the last season, people maybe suggested that we got a little bit bloated. Episodes started spiralling out of control. We tried to spice things up with a guest star as well. But now we're back with a new season, ready to take on Acton Baby and everything beyond. It's tough being in the hottest um, podcast in the world. I mean, that, appearing on Time Magazine. We, we yeah, we we were there and um, uh, we started getting you know huge likes and huge amounts of listens in Germany and Finland and Poland, Argentina, um, Canada. Which I think when we when we started this, we didn't actually think that people would listen to it, or, or we we didn't think about that stage of it when it actually went out. Mm. But it is, it's quite nice that people are, are listening and, and enjoying it, and I'm loving the, the fan feedback that we're getting. Rather fittingly, one of the people that have followed us is the lead singer of uh, a U2 tribute band in Melbourne. Uh, do you have the name, though? Uh, Michael... Cavallero. Ma- Michael Cavallero. Michael Cavallero, yes. I think that's how you pronounce it. Michael, if um, we pronounce that wrong, we're very, very sorry. But, yeah, it's, it's great that we've managed... And we were just two small-town boys in Wigan... Um, you know, north side of Manchester, <laughs> you know, in the UK, and our podcast is getting to Australia. That's 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 insane. We we de- definitely didn't think about that. No, um, but we do want to thank everybody who has listened and continues to listen. Um, we're really enjoying this process, and just please continue to send us um, your feedback and listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, and stay in touch on Facebook. Yeah, that would be great. But. We're not here just to talk about Review 2, we're here to talk about Acton Baby. So, Tyler, why don't you take us through what the band has been up to since Rattle and Hum. Okie doke. So, here we go. It was uh, March 1989 when the band won two Grammy Awards, one for Where the Streets Have No Name and one for Desire. Uh, In September, the Love Town tour begins. Now, this is a tour that, at its very heart, is a series of shows promoting love, peace, Christian values... Uh, it's probably U2's most political period as a whole, and that's where U2 begin to get a lot of detractors, uh, and that's where a lot of the criticism of them taking themselves way too seriously really begins. On New Year's Eve 1989, Bono tells a sold-out crowd at the Point Depot in Dublin that it's time for the band to go away and dream it all up again. In November 1990, the band go to Hansa Studios in Berlin to commence work on what would become Actung Baby. This is the same location that 
Brian Eno helped produce David Bowie's Heroes album 13 years earlier. And they get the uh, the last flight in on that one as well. They yeah. talk about the fact that they zoom in on the very last flight into the old, you know, divided Germany before the official reunification. So it's a really interesting time to be producing music in that city. And I think that idea of going to where lightning had struck for Bowie and for Iggy Pop, that was meant to be, you know, they were hoping that that lightning would strike again. And we'll see if it does. This period is um, very... Uh, everything's changing. Music's changing. Pop culture's changing. The world and Europe is um, uh, in a very infant-like state at that point. But just going back to uh, everything that happens... The band are in the studio with, this time, three producers. Danny Lanois is in a more major role. He's really taking the helm on this one, isn't he? Yeah. Brian Eno um, is more of an advisor. He's really he's quite overly committed to a lot of different projects. So he doesn't... Brian Eno doesn't feature as heavily on this album as some people may think. And Steve Lillywhite is also in the studio for at least some of the recordings. Hmm. Um, so you've got you two's three main producers there all together in the studio for this uh, newborn U2. In October 1991, The Fly knocks Brian Adams off the top spot after 16 weeks. Brian Adams had the longest reigning number one, I think in UK history at that point, certainly of the, uh, the 90s. Mm. And it was I didn't realise it was U2 that knocked, uh, knocked him off the top spot. So that that was quite interesting. And what was the song? Uh, Everything I Do, I Do For You. It was the soundtrack to Robin Hood. Yeah, um, the Kevin Cosner film. The Kevin Cosner one with Alan Rickman. Yeah. Well, I'm sure everyone was very, very happy that you two came in and knocked them off the I, I don't think that's a bad song. Oh, well, that'll be on the review, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I came across a little uh, quote by Stephen Dalton um, just about this time and where you two were. As the 80s ended, U2 were simultaneously the most loved and most hated rock supergroup on the planet. U2's creaky rock and soul roadshow looked decidedly retro. Yeah. So they kind of they were forced the, the hand was forced in, into changing things. Whereas U2 had previously been seen as an earnest, polite, uh, righteous and and uh, rockist uh, acting baby symbolized the new trashy, throwaway, dark, sexy, industrial mm. attitude. Um, if anything, Acting Baby made you two both human and superhuman. Uh, the, the, there was a lot more depth created with this album. I think, yeah, the, the whole point of this album is that you two were able to embrace irony and play with images of themselves. So they spent, and a lot of the material that we're going to be quoting, a lot of the ideas we're discussing... You can find um, them really well covered on the excellent documentary From the Sky Down. Heavily recommend checking that out. But one of the things that they said was they spent all of the 80s throwing stones at other people, at other targets, you know, political targets, that kind of thing. And that was well-meaning, but often seen as very, very pompous. And they realised, here we can, we can start to actually throw stones at the edifice that you two had grown into. And that's what makes this album so fascinating. So, yeah, it is all about um, ideas that they haven't covered before. Well, they spent the 80s trying to be um, this huge, serious rock band and kind of avoiding all that glam stuff that had come before them, which actually Bono was quite interested in and yeah. influenced by. He, it was like he was reacting against that. He, he 
he was influenced by it, but he wanted to be seen as something different. Mm. And what is nice about this album is they start to let those influences show a little bit more. And it's just a far more interesting presentation after what was quite an extended spell of retro, retro arduous, arduous aesthetic. I think a quote that really sums up the problems with, you know, the whole rattle and hum debacle and go back to our previous episode uh, from season one, if you want to get our take on that album, a quote that sums it up is what's new for us isn't new necessarily for the listener. Now, all of the things that you two have been really getting into musically, the rootsy American blues sound, I don't think it was their intention to come across as, hey, America, you 2 is going to show you what your own music is. But that's how it came across to a lot of people. And that position was completely untenable. Now, Joshua Tree is a very, very earnest record. And there's a lot of sincerity on it and a lot of big targets are taken on. You think of songs like Bullet the Blue Sky, Mothers of the Disappeared, that kind of thing. That works when you've got the songs to back it up. And that's why this didn't implode, you know, right away with, with Joshua Tree. You two are riding high there. The problem is that that edifice is still brittle. And once you produce something like Rattling Home, where you don't necessarily have the songs and they take it even further with the, the cowboy hats and the American music, that edifice crumbles and thank God it crumbled. So, you 2 right now, to sum up, um, in 1991, with Act Baby, this, you might as well view this as anti-U2. They are trying to be as different from what they are perceived to be mm. as possible. Uh, so I think we should go track by track. I think that's a good idea. Tyler, I'm ready. I'm ready for what's next. The next stop will be Zoo Station. All change at Zoo Station. So here we are, track one on Actung Baby, Zoo Station. Very different from anything we've heard from you two previously. Mm. Very new sound, uh, industrial feel. You can imagine adults hearing the kids play this for the first time and going, "That's not music." <laughs> Classic uh, parents' reaction. Because it doesn't, it doesn't sound like, and it's quite quite easy to say that it doesn't sound rhythmic, it doesn't sound melodic. But out of this distortion, that melody does arrive from the repetitiveness. Mm. But that so was the intention. Though. Yeah, the intention was to make something that sounded like once you put it on, maybe this CD is broken or something has gone wrong with this album. That was the intention all along to break away from the huge you know kind of production values that you two had where everything sounds polished and clean and epic now this is gritty industrial grimy you can feel the city in it so i think it'd be interesting to talk about where we were when we heard this album and for me i can't separate hearing this whole album for the first time with my very clear memory of hearing zoo station for the very first time so We've said before that this was a time where we didn't have songs on YouTube, you know, so it was actually quite cool that you could get an album. And yeah, I'd heard uh, some of the main songs like One or The Fly on the best of uh, the 1990 to 2001. But it was brilliant. You could pick up an album and just look and see all these tracks which you had never heard before. So I bought this album and waited for the bus 
Um, I think it's kind of appropriate that I was traveling on a pretty inefficient transport system when I, when I first heard this. It was the zoo bus, wasn't it? The zoo bus, all the way to Wigan Zoo Station. Um, and I, I remember I waited. I didn't put it on while I was waiting in the queue. I waited until I got settled and sat down and the bus had started off. And I put on Zoo Station. And then hearing all the clicks and things that I've never, never experienced before in terms of a U2 sound. And... It felt oddly uncomfortable, actually, when Bono started singing. I, the industrial thing I was fine with because I was already into, you know, bands like Marilyn Manson or Nine Inch Nails that had that kind of, you know, those kind of industrial sounds. But just that sort of odd note that Bono hits when he comes out straight away. And it, I think it's great that it made me slightly uncomfortable because this wasn't meant to be business as usual. This was meant to be you two are doing something different and they're going to try and push you a little bit. I, I since, you know, I love it now every time I hear the, the start and that note um, comes in that Bono hits. I mean, do you find it slightly weird, that kind of thing? Um, it's, it doesn't strike me as weird, but I, now I see it as, as the fly. Um, so I'm very... Coming out of his... Clisser, uh, <laughs> coming out the of fly his... is coming out of what? Is Chrysalis. It's Chrysalis, right. Chrysalis. I thought we were going somewhere else. I know we're going to reinvent the podcast, but that's going a bit too far. So, um, no, I don't I don't feel that. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you've got you've got to admit, Bono, his vocal quality is so different here, and they've consciously distorted the voice. So it's not just Larry whose drums have now changed into a different sound. Um, this is something we'll come back to again and again. Mm. The, the, what is the position of Larry on this album? And what is is that precarious? Because now we've got a drum machine encroaching on the territory of a founding, you know, a key member of the band. But, yeah, what do you think about, about that? Well, that, that's interesting. I do want to come back to that point. Um, but when I bought this album, I made a mistake. I bought this album from a second-hand uh, stall. Old Sweaty Steve's? Uh, no, actually, no. But the album, there must have been a defect on the disc or, or something. And I don't know if it was... It didn't, it didn't look scratched or anything, but I just saw this album really cheap, and I thought, well, this is one I haven't got. I'll buy it. And the sound quality was really, really bad. So I never listened to this album until... Huh. Um, Atomic Bomb came out and Bono was talking about the fly a lot and talking about Actung Baby. Because he made a, a bit of a return, didn't he, the fly, live? Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, I'll readdress this. But I think I just knew more about music at that point. I thought, wait, this can't sound like this. This this has to be the, the CD. Brian so, Eno would have loved that version, I think, of the album. So I went out and bought it again and loved it. Uh, I don't want to go down a spiritual road, but I think... I'm quite glad I didn't discover this album really early because I don't think I would have been ready for it. I wasn't ready for the gridlock. Hmm. I wasn't ready for the shuffle and I wasn't ready for the deal. Oh, neither. So, yeah, because it, it, my favourite song, I think my favourite song is on this album. It, it It's between two. Uh, so I'm glad that when I discovered this, I was a little bit more mature and... It was uh, it, it was later on in the in my fandom of you two when I when I bought, when I finally listened to this album properly. Well, this is the most mature record at this point. I think it's the most complex. It's the most deep. 
it's the one that does have sexuality on it. You were talking about spirituality. That is also addressed throughout this album in a much more interesting way than I think has come before. Or at least, maybe interesting is the wrong word, but in a less earnest way than it has appeared, certainly on an album like October. And there's some really conscious grappling with with religion and with its edifice and with spirituality in general on this album which i think is is really good did you know that this is um one of three songs derived from lady with the spinning head yeah for those of you that don't know lady with the spinning head ended up as a Mm b-side i think in the a couple years that followed this album but that was a song they were working away at and uh then they they turned it into three songs all of which appear on this album and that's really good because I think it gives a nice sense of cohesion to the whole album. It definitely doesn't sound like sections are being repeated. I mean, it's very weird to listen to... No, this album's one idea. I've heard it described as the the first half is um, a night out, and the second half is a hangover. I think that's said about a lot of U2 albums, though. Like, Didn't Bono try to spin that line with pop as well? There are a lot of U2 songs that do sound like a hangover. Yeah, There's a whole album coming up in a a few years. (laughs) But I think that that definitely does work i'm glad they didn't try and make this a complete concept album i think that very rarely works but yeah the whole the whole journey of this album is really interesting this is one u2 album i would not change the track listing or ordering whatsoever it absolutely works and that's why zoo station's so good i think we'll come back to that i think we'll come back to that in a bit i think we're gonna possibly butt heads throughout this album (laughs) review because i love this album and I find it very difficult to be critical about it. So it would be interesting to hear... I mean, this is like the inverse of last week. Um, so it would be really interesting to hear your criticisms of this because I, I do try and think of things that are bad or wrong with this album and often come up with nothing. Even better than the real thing. This song emerged from a earlier draft which was called The Real Thing and... This song really shows U2's move from a kind of what might be perceived as pompousness, being a bit overly earnest, to a sense of fun and a sense of self-subversion. And just moving away from the kind of songs... I mean, if we were going to be academic or even pretentious about this, we could say this is a move from U2 which is basically postmodern. So there is now not an interest in truth and absolute values and certainties and saying this is the way the world is this is the way things should be this is morality and these are clear certain edifices that cannot change now it's a move to subversion to fluidity to things being up for grabs and things being disorientating and that's why i like this song because all of that comes across through edge's whammy bar you know the um the sorry whammy pedal that he's got which generates that really odd odd sound you know of the octave shifting and all the all of the guitar work that goes into this song just makes it seem fresh and fun i mean how much younger did you two sound here than love rescue me and rattle and hum and all the other stuff they sound like they're having fun with this there's a few times on on the album uh where you can hear their excitement at doing something new yeah um i, I don't know if it's uh innovative because if you, the problem with saying things are innovative is people go well actually i think you'll find five years earlier this band brought out this album and you two stole a lot of the techniques of this but i don't know i'm, I'm not 
interest in that. For you too, this is an innovative sound. It's this a boring is a, claim, isn't it, to say this isn't a hundred percent new? Yeah. I um, mean, who is? Yeah. It's not possible in art. But I think this is this is a standout U2 album because of uh, how shiny and new, and uh, you know there was a lack of. They didn't really care if they got things wrong on this album. They were laughing at themselves and allowing themselves mm. a, a break and just enjoying what they're doing. I think that's definitely true by the 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 sort of the latter half of the whole construction of the album. In the start, I guess there was just so much tension, and a lot of this album comes, you know, it comes from the tension that is in the band, and then the release of "Oh, this is actually working" because you two were, I mean, they've been they have threatened to break up at various points throughout their career, but I this was one of the closest. How serious those. Well, this was serious, I think, for Larry and Adam particularly. Well, I, I wonder, I wonder how serious those claims actually are. It might be a narrative that is being spun afterwards to make... I mean, so From the Sky Down very much tells that story that Adam and Larry were unsure as to what the band's role was. Edge is off listening to new industrial music and Manchester, the Manchester craze, you know, electronic dance music, uh, drum loops, that sort of thing. And there were walls, basically, between all the members of the band. And if you're Larry, if you're a drummer... And you're being told, oh, there's a machine that's going to basically replace half of what you do here. That isn't convincing. Well, Larry kind of got clever with that because he realised that the band were using the drum machines and th must have been thinking, you know, well, what's my purpose here? So then started to record drum loops for the band to use mm. so that it was actually his rhythms and, you know his drums going through them, that's what they were using. So when they came back and went, oh, by the way, I've used this, mm. then Larry already had a start and he, he didn't have to find that place of replacing a, a drum machine. He could do it anyway because he created the loops. Yeah, and he and his loops have so much more personality than if you just you know, use some programmable drums. I mean, it's good for a starting point, but you'll never get something that actually sounds, well, like you too and has a groove in it. And Larry's yeah. such an individual drummer, so... But even better than the real thing, uh, I have a problem with this song, and I, I don't really know why. Because when I listen to it, it's 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 fun and it's good. Uh, I don't think it comes across well live. It, what? It's kind of like the ugly. Um, well, to my mind and in my opinion, um, it's kind of the ugly duckling of of U two tracks because it doesn't. It works better as a, as a studio song. I don't think it has the same impact live, and, and that's like the complete opposite to most U two tracks. Most U two tracks, you hear them on the album and think, "Oh, I can't wait to hear this live." And maybe yeah. people people felt like this about even better than the real thing, but it doesn't work in my opinion. You might disagree, but well, would you would you say is that true for all mixes of it? Because they obviously did the very different version of it at Glastonbury which has got a very different kind of pace to it well when we saw them at uh, Innocence and Experience in London yes they played that and I, w I was very interested what was going on that they had the recreation of the Berlin Wall and the audience split between north side and south side yeah um, which should have been east and west if you're doing the Berlin Wall Anyway, yeah, but it's a Dublin reference, isn't it? Well, yeah, um, they just moved the Berlin Wall to Dublin. As you do, yeah, standard practice for you too. Well, if you're gonna fly your hat first class across the world, 
What's a wall? You <laughs> um, saying? Yeah, I remember being really impressed with the the imagery and the way this song was coming in, and it was it was a remix. But I just I, I remember thinking, I wish I'd used a better song than this. <laughs> um, but when I listened to it, and I listened and I listened to it to review it, it's fine and it's great. But it doesn't it doesn't stick with me. There's never a time where I want to listen to even better than the real thing. Maybe this is where there might be a slight difference in that I'm approaching this album. I, I love what every member of the band is doing, but I really like Edge's guitar. So, I mean, so w when I heard this song, my first impulse is to go to my effects box and try and get all the same sounds that Edge is using there. Yeah. And failing. And by the way, for all the Review 2 fans out there who think we are just fanboying all the time and uh, agreeing with each other, we... Myself and Johnny come at U2 from a very, very different angle because I want um, I want a U2 song that I can sing along to and in, in, that, that kind of campfire song, maybe easier to play, whereas you really like the experiment, uh, experimentation from uh, from Edge, the mm. different effects uh, and the different sounds that you can get out of one guitar. Yeah. So that's the difference between me and you, I think, with that one. Yeah, but it like U2, you know, it's a... It's a tension that helps our creative process, I believe. We're both bringing different things to the table. Absolutely. Do you... I, I know you didn't... I was kind of being ironic then. <laughs> so we're like, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know... Um, we're going to talk now. We're going to jump in time to 2016. Uh, there was a song released recently and played by DJ Kygo, I think his name is, um, called The Best Thing, which is a collaboration with U2. Mm. You heard that, but I don't think you listened to all of it. I'm, I've am i heard a little bit, but I'm one of those U2 fans that actually would just rather wait till the band put it out in its final version. I kind of don't want to hear the early drafts. That's fine, but I'm quite thirsty for you know new U2 things at this point. And when that came out, I did listen to it, and it's now been deleted off the internet, which is... How do you even delete something off the internet so successfully? How much money have they got to waste? You two have got friends in high places. This is it's ridiculous. I think they know Mr. Internet. But I listened to that song and it will it'll probably be released soon, uh, if you haven't heard it. But after a few listens, I, I I thought this melody rings a bell. And it's even better than the real thing. Oh really? Yeah. It, it's it, the melody is, is very, very similar. Well, it'd be interesting to see what if other people have made that kind of connection. Weirdly, listening to this album, I started to get into, uh, I started to get into a mode where I kept hearing little U two melodies in other bands and other songs. So, do people agree with Tyler on that? Um, well, but... just to just to finish that point, if you just take the first verse, I think in the first verse it says, um, "You've a pretty face, but you won't let it show," um, and. The way it's sung, it, it does sound different, but it's the structure of the of the vocals mm. is very very similar. And I, I've not in, I've not yeah. seen anybody else say that on any of the fan sites that I've, you know I've been on. But I've not looked. You know there could mm. be huge discussions about it that I've just missed. Um, but yeah, get in touch and let us know about that. The only thing I wanted to say about even better than the real thing in closing is, and this is a point that comes from uh, Niall Stokes his excellent book, Into the Heart. So I don't want to claim that it's something I've found out myself, but 
Richard Branson, when he tried to bring out his new Virgin Coke or Cola, whatever it was called, um, contacted the band because obviously Coca-Cola's catchphrase is the real thing, and to say, could we use that for the um, for the advertising uh, for all the adverts, basically? So you'd have even better than the real thing being played as Virgin Cola is is being promoted. That shows an absolute misunderstanding of the irony that is at the heart of Acton Baby. It's such a sh- and no wonder the band refused. It's such a stupid idea. The idea that the band would be saying, "Yeah, this product is definitively better than another product," it just it completely misses the point. So, are you two getting better, or are they just the same? This is one track three. Well, I think they're definitely getting better. And this is the song that saved the band, if we're going to be dramatic, if we're going to believe the kind of the narrative um, that I think basically holds for uh, from the sky down. You two have been having a lot of creative difficulties. The trip to Berlin didn't really work in the kind of way that they were expecting or hoping. So they turned up with all these legendary ideas of Bowie's uh, Berlin period, Iggy Pop, and found that the Hansa studio had actually, you know, it was on, it was in mothballs, basically. It wasn't that new or dynamic. Equipment had to be brought in and replaced. And the band were not still being... Edge and Bono were still not convincing Larry and Adam that this was the direction, that they needed to go into this new, bold reinvention, that kind of direction. And they only spent the first part of the recording, though, didn't they? They went back to Windmill Lane halfway through. Yeah, it was very uh, because much... Because they, they, they weren't completely happy with... Um, the recording at Hansa Studios. No, and I just think they hadn't... At the start of that process, they really hadn't gelled properly as a band. They would just keep playing and playing and nothing would work. But then... And it's better to go to the actual documentary if you want to see the genesis of this song. But essentially, they took a section from Mysterious Ways from a different track, put it together with some other sections, and almost in 15 minutes, the key chords for one arrived. And they could say, ah, here's an, act- here's an actual song. And they could convince Adam and Larry that this was a good idea. And, I mean, a lot of people hear this as a love song. And I think that's that's obviously a very a very easy way to see it. But to me, this, and maybe since just doing the research, but this song now is, for me, is about the band staying together and about carrying each other through that process. Yeah, it's a very, it's one of those classic U2 songs that um, non-fans... Uh, non-anorex, uh, uh, no one like, um, but unfortunately, I think it adds more to the the 80s perception of that rock and soul thing, rather than this new experimental, interesting band. I think this is one of the, although it's a very good song, I think it's one of the only hangovers that uh, this is pretty much the only song on the album that could have come out in the 80s. Mm, I know it has sure. a different sound, but it has a, a similar sensibility to it at its heart this is a song that you can play on an acoustic guitar the kind of thing that bono was looking for in rattle and hum as opposed to more overproduced things and so i agree with you to that point uh, to that extent and it's worth mentioning as part of a sidebar that johnny cash version is so good and proves that you know the the bare bones of the song can be played on an acoustic, you know, two acoustics and sound amazing. But I still think this is a song that's much more heartfelt 
weirdly enough, than a lot of the stuff that's come before in the 80s. So you two are making these big statements like, all I want is you, and... <laughs> it's about something that they've actually experienced. This is about uh, yeah. the edges, the breakdown of the edges relationship with his first wife. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, that's pretty real. They're old enough now to be going through real things. Uh, they're coming out of the, the 20s into the, the 30s and experiencing life in a much more mature way. And they got married young. I mean, comparative to what, I mean, standard for those days, but comparative to the way that relationships generally go these days. Bono and Ali were married in the womb. <laughs> what a horrible image. Um, so, did you hear about Brian... Sorry for the priest. <laughs> did you hear about Brian Eno on this? Because apparently Eno comes in and he's obviously in favour of pushing the band to the more experimental route. Um and the band comes back and shows him, or he drops in to the album's recording and shows them all. He shows them all. They show Brian Eno all the new tracks, and he says, "That's great, that's great." Oh, except for that terribly boring song one. When did this happen? Well, Why did no one tell me? Well, it's exciting. <laughs> Brian, I don't know. I don't. I really don't understand what Brian Eno is. Look, I'd like to know what Brian Eno's top albums are. Um. It's it's really strange. I, I, I'm not doubting that Brian Eno is some kind of genius, but he's always he, Brian. We'd love to have you on the show, but occasionally your decisions are quite moronic. Right. Well, that, <laughs> you can't say moronic. He's never going to come on the show now, well, like he ever was. <laughs> right. So Brian Eno is the he's he's a little bit of a villain at the start of this because he comes in and says one's not very good. Is he your favorite E2 producer? I like it when Eno is involved in things. I think he works well on this record because he just drops in every now and then. He's not at the helm. Lanoir is solidly at the helm. I, yeah, I like I like Danny Lanoir because there are less annoying stories about him. <laughs> Although we can blame Stelvin Fowman I'm looking for on, on Lanoir. I've got a Lanoir story later on. An annoying one? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it doesn't go on for very long either. Yeah. But overall, I think I prefer Steve Lillywhite. Just because of those those three albums. I've, I've been more impressed going through this journey with the th first three mm. and his impact on them, which is why I was interested to see his name pop up on this. But I think it's only he only has a credit on one song. Yeah, it's just uh, Wild Horses that he's that he was brought in to help because that was particularly difficult. Very interesting. Ooh. Very interesting. Um, but I think one person that needs a mention in this is Flood as well, the, um, the engineer. His work on the desk all the way through this, and obviously... We don't know extensive details of, of that kind of process, but every time I see Flood mentioned in a track, I just think it's going to be good. And this is an album where the studio is so important. And this is where Brian Eno actually becomes the hero of the story because he does add lots and lots of different arrangements to this. He said, well, if you're having that boring, you know, so-called boring song, according to Brian Eno, then you're going to have to do something different with it. And that's where I think a lot of the interesting sounds of one come through you're shaking your head tyler i, I just I, I can't understand the mindset of hearing this song and thinking no you can't put that out I, I i don't understand what's going through his head if you want great songs like fourth of july then you're gonna have to put up with brian in the studio and that's what you need I, i'd love to I, I i mean i really would love to interview brian eno but i'm scared we'd fall out well yeah because you'd call him a <laughs> moron and then he'd go off and listen to some ambient music and he'd be like, oh no, you don't actually understand what I was trying to do there. It doesn't even sound like that at all. Yes, he does. I think he maybe sounded a little bit more clipped uh, 
in the older, you can see an old uh, footage of him. We're saying, yeah, Bono, come on, let's try that again with a little bit more emotion. It's very good, actually. Yeah, yours is better than mine. Until the end of the world. This is an excellent song, and it shocked me to find out that, because as Tyler mentioned before, I am approaching the album from a guitar point of view, and this was always the song that I went to when I wanted some really you know kind of interesting guitar work from edge the the opening riff always like just slams through me but it's not edge it's well it's edge recording it but bono wrote this riff and that absolutely shocked me it's pretty cool i think it, we certainly don't play that he he can play guitar it's often turned down on on stage though you yeah embarrassingly see. so anybody who knows anything about music can, you can see and you can just tell like Bono, you're not contributing anything to that, though. I get it if he wants to have a certain stance and a look. But it's a rock image, isn't it, to stand yeah. as, as a, a vocalist, to stand there with a guitar and look like you, you're contributing to that. It has the same effect as Adam smoking a cigarette all the time. It's just, just a cool image. Annoying. And Bono has really good taste in guitars as well. Well, that's true, but you can, you can afford to have good taste in guitars if you're Bono. And also, Adam shouldn't be smoking whilst playing the bass. That is frowned upon behaviour. Naughty boy, Adam Clayton. Yes, Naughty it's boy. not what rock stars do. Um, but it's an it's an amazing riff, isn't it? I mean, if you oh, want to oh, show yeah. if you want to show a non U two fan, or you you get that classic uh, criticism of U two as oh Edge can't play guitar, which is a very boring criticism, um, then this is one that I go to 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 show people. It comes uh, for me. This comes back to that Bob Dylan quote that we keep seemingly coming back to, um, where he said to Bono, uh, "Your songs will last forever, but uh, no one's going to be able to play them." Yeah. How many times have we just done this drunk and just off the cuff, really, um, really raw, but it's it's playable yeah. and it ticks both boxes for you and me because it's fun to sing along to mm. and it's fun to play. And when you get that full band, I mean, I'm, obviously we've never been in a band anywhere near the calibre of U2, but it's a really fun and relatively easy song to replicate. You can do it with just an acoustic guitar. The, the bare-bone structure of the song holds, as it does for every single song on this album, I would say. Whereas other U2 songs, it is, if we're being uncharitable, all production, you know, some yeah. of the weaker songs. Well, this made this made me uh, think about the album uh, up to this point, uh, because it's it's quite easy to say, okay, yeah, you two change direction. This album is very, it's very experimental. But if if you go back, Zoo Station is more industrial than anything. Mm -hmm. if, if you're going to put one particular genre on anything, Zoo Station will be industrial. Uh, even better than Re Real Thing, is very bluesy. Is it? I, I think you've got a very bluesy guitar in there. I think that's where it, it, its heart is in, in blues. But, you know, mm. this is my opinion. You don't have to agree. Uh, one is more of a pop love song, ballad, that kind of thing. Okay, I'll go with that. And then Until the End of the World is a sheer rock track. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So they're certainly jumping around with genres, but it all works as one complete album. Definitely, yeah. Um, I think this song is more of a comment to the fans uh, you know that thing with Zoo TV where they're going what do you want mm. and they keep repeating that, that idea of isn't what... that in Zoo Roper I think it is in Zoo Roper and 
it's because we watched Zoo TV last night that it's in my head. <laughs> uh, but you two had basically been doing stuff that they they all were really enjoying, and and they were enjoying the musical journey. And then everybody went, yeah, we're a bit bored of you two now. So they started to do what they really enjoy, yeah, and then had to change everything. And I, I do think this is a, like a, a comment from Bono on the relationship between you two and you two fans, and just not knowing what what each other want anymore. And it's kind of like the breakdown of a relationship and that Jesus and Judas thing that they always bring into the the live yeah, setting. There's a sense of maybe betrayal or mistrust there. Yeah, and you think that's to do with the fans? That's an interesting. I think I think, think it's about a, it. um, I think it's um, it's like crisis talks with the with the fans of just yeah. like we were doing all this for you and then you know you you turned on us and they, but they're doing it, it it's the best time to do it because they're actually uh criticizing themselves and laughing at themselves and saying yeah mm. that was ridiculous but it's also quite an honest song in terms of like we we want this relationship to continue but we just you know, it's got to be a little bit of give and take. We've got to mm. be able to do what we want and, you know, a, li- a little bit of what you want. It's a half-formed idea for me, but I, I'm certainly getting that impression when I listen to the song these days. Well, that reminds me of that quote from Bono when he's discussing this moment and saying that it really did involve a leap of faith for the for the fans and for you too between these two periods because he says you've got to completely reinvent everything you've got to move from one formation of the band to the other and in between that you've got nothing basically you've got a space where you don't know if this is going to work and that's why you know larry and adam had such serious doubts about about the band moving forward i'm always i mean i'm always interested in the fact that this song it does have a interesting it does have interesting imagery in terms of Judas and Jesus. I mean, from a band that were part of the Shalom group that were very, very into a particularly earnest form of Christianity, of a more evangelical type of Christianity, to now have a song which is centrally about the, you know, which is A, given from Judas's perspective in a very sympathetic way, and also that has a lot of potentially homosexual references. You know, there's this kind of relationship between Jesus and Judas. That's really interesting that they've been able to do that and play with those ideas. And I think it's also a meditation on addiction. So you've got the line, in my dream, I was drowning my sorrows, but my sorrows, they learned to swim. I can't think of a better way to encapsulate, you know, the way addiction functions. It comes across as... Like a song from a first album, you know all those feelings of unknowns, mm. and this is so. I I don't know if any band has. There must be some examples, but I don't know how many bands have had two albums so close together, two years apart, so starkly different. Mm. Not just in um, in in aesthetic, but in in the, values, I guess. Yeah, in values, the way it sounds. The change in genre, the change in attitude, just they completely threw out. If you imagine a room uh, that is gathering everything of you, uh, everything about you two, everything to do with you two. So, what would be in that room up to this point? A Stetson hat. A Stetson, yeah, a Stetson hat, uh, high heeled cowboy boots, <laughs> um, all of the Edges outfits, please, from the entire thing. In fact, he looked okay on Red Rocks. But. Every, every, the mullets, 
everything. It's all the gone. Flag, yeah. It's all in there. And now we need to burn that room down and renovate it and start afresh. There's no better sense on this album of that idea than in this song. Who's going to ride your wild horses? Tyler, what do you think of this? Absolutely one of my uh, favourite U2 songs of all time. It was... it. I held this in really, really high high regard, like top three for a long time. I think it's dropped a little bit now, um, but it's still one of my favourite U2 songs of all time. Um, one of the best sing-along U2 tracks. I, 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 I In the same vein um, as Until the End of the World, it's very easy to say, you know, it's, there's nothing too extraordinary this is a big chorus on this as well, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's definitely it, a single. It's fun and it, it's it's nice. And I remember my um my, my pride and like adulation of buying of finding the singles and, and buying them. Because I would have been well, I was I was I wasn't even one when this album came out. In fact, no, I think I was one in one day when this album came out. So uh for those of you at home uh, my my birthday is November the seventeenth, so feel free to send some lovely presents my way. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen. Using the airtime wisely. I remember in university, this song really had a an impact on me. Like had a resurgence with me, and I listen I listened to this album particularly in in university quite a lot. Um, and I actually wrote a poem inspired by this song and a play that we we both saw. Mm. which escapes me. We saw it in Bolton. We saw it at the Bolton Octagon, and it... Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Was, who's, yeah. Um, so, if Yeah, you right, like, I'll put my feet up and uh, get ready for I am ready going for poetry to read, hour. Uh, the poem and see if you spot the U2 reference. She's late again. She's been drinking. I've been drinking. The hour gets later. Time runs thin. I smell cologne. It's better than mine. She always told me to change it. The heels are off. Her feet are muddy. Adventurous bitch. The times I've asked for another position. She bites at our cold meal. Flesh turs and gravy drips to her chin. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> She's a messy eater. That time at the... <laughs> that time at the ivory... God, the meatballs. <laughs> Flying off the plate like missiles. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we did it all too young. We knew it all. Chewed up, digested. Eighteen when we met. The things I'd go back and change. Nineteen when we wed. Witnesses looked away. Twenty, a stillborn, accidents waiting to happen. Oh, is it finally turned up at the end then? Yep. It wasn't the gravy or the meatballs. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. I've never had laughs at that poem before, but that's great. Oh man, I actually do like the poem. It was just it was it started off so serious and then gravy turned. Up. <laughs> <laughs> gravy turns up in like most of my uh, most of my poetry actually. Well, you are from Wigan. Um. So what what do, what do you want to say about that song? Is uh, that 
the song in relation to that poem? Is it just the fact that the accident waiting to happen? Yeah, um, you're you know you're a piece of glass left there on the beach. It's it's just it's just a beautiful like. There's so many um, things in life, not just relationships, but so many things in life that you you know you shouldn't do, but it's fun to do them anyway. It's fun to it's it's a good experience and it's a worthwhile experience. And it's just there's a, a youthful energy and like I want to make mistakes. I want to. Um, experience both the positives and negatives of things well that comes through on the whole album doesn't it because i think i think bono went a bit wild at this point because he'd and the rest of the band really had spent so long during the uh formative years the years when people you know conventionally go a bit nuts do a lot of drinking that kind of thing he'd spent all that time being very earnest having particular values and putting so much effort into the band and i'm not saying that they never had any fun but Bono, by his own admission, said this was the point where, you know, he was sort of let off the leash. He went a bit mad and went through, went, you know, through the city. And that's why I love this album, because there seems so much fun and, like you were saying, energy. And that does come through on this on this song. Well, that idea of the title, Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses? Who's going to do the things that you're, you're scared to do? You know, who's gonna um, not let that fear get in the way and and just live your life? It's a great song. It's a lovely. It's. A, I think. I think of it as a love song, but I'm not so sure it is. Well, I think it's a song about um, betrayal, isn't it? I mean, I, I think if we look at the the last three songs, there actually have been they've actually been this common focus on the relationships coming under massive tension or strain or breaking down in some form. So to me, it's always been who's gonna who's gonna be the next person, basically that question that horrible moment where a relationship is turning and you start thinking, Oh God, this in a, in, you know, a matter of weeks or days, even or months, I won't be sat here and maybe someone else will be sat, you know, next to this person. And that's, that's a really interesting feeling to go through on a song. I will say I love all of actor, maybe's lyrics, but am I being too forgiving to when I hear a line, like who's going to fall at the foot of thee? and think that's a good line well maybe he struggled with that line it doesn't bother me i think it only bothers... and like it's not the most pretentious we've ever heard you to be no but and also not pick them up on that but i think because of the whole stance of this album its approach a line like that actually can work because bono is trying on lots and lots of different personalities here there's no clear sense of this is just bono as one unified individual speaking here he's trying on lots of different things so that line could work from a different perspective one of the other things i thought was interesting about this song was the fact that and this exists all the way through the album the city is very present so you get all these all this imagery sure there's there's imagery of a beach but we've got these lines you're dangerous because you're honest you're dangerous because you don't know what you want where you left my heart empty as a vacant lot for any spirit to haunt empty as a vacant lot a vacant lot. Did I say bacon lot? You said bacon lot, yeah. Wow, that's an interesting Freudian slip. Um, okay, so going back to that and I'm ignoring... I'm just imagining my, a bacon lot. Ignoring my mental... Uh, You've ruined it. All I can think of is pigs. Okay, well, ignoring my odd processes, mentally speaking, I think what we've got is the city and the individual's experience being woven together here. So having someone described as being empty as a vacant lot... It seems that the city is doing the feeling on this album for a lot of the characters and figures on it. 
and you two are just being a lot more interesting with the lyrics here. Yeah. Okay, so track six on Act One, baby. So mm -hmm. cruel. What do you think? Um, first thing I've got is a question. What genre would you say this is? I would say this is... Well, I, I mean, I do... I'm kind of privy to the song's creation because of the research I did about this. So I know that it started out as just a simple acoustic song that I think Bono was basically working with here. So, But genre is very difficult. I mean, it's a rock ballad of some sort maybe yeah. a rock song if I, I can't really be much more specific no, I, I just struggled to say yeah i couldn't i couldn't decide what it was um really good lyrics it's it's almost a poem this song mm -hmm. you wear your love like a see-through dress it's just it's a very odd line that isn't it because what does that mean well i get the idea of a negligee in, mm -hmm. in my mind um very sexy imagery well this is this is the album where you two actually attempt, and we, I mean, obviously it might be different in terms of how we judge the success of it, but attempt to grapple more with sexuality. Well, I know this is um, where you think Bono is at his sexiest. So do you imagine um, Bono in this negligee? Because no. I am always imagining a woman. Well, like, I, I, I'm not imagining anything, really. And definitely... It's okay, we're all friends here. Look, this is the album where you two attempt to do sexy in a way that they're actually grappling with it as an idea and there's all these references um not particularly well veiled references all the way through to oral sex and to um to basically the gritty underbelly of the city that kind of thing mm. so and and to do with well, relationships this is, this is uh the, the last track on the album so if we're using album side one it it, it uh, last track of yeah, side one. So if we're saying side one is the night out and side two is the hangover, um, you get those ideas of you know late night, really drunk, just about to get a taxi home. Uh, so some people might be you know desperation setting in, just trying to fall into somebody's arms just to feel better about yourself. You know all those kind of drunken, dark late night ideas. Yeah. Um, but this to me sounds that, more like it takes a, on a, a yeah it's more of a I think it's this is more of a, a more of a nice love song than that kind of thing. But if you view it that way, it does take on a, a much darker hmm. feeling to it. There's a sickness I think all the way through this song and through the album. Wherever there's love, there is also a, well definitely tension, obsession, obsession, addiction, and um, so again we sound like we're naming perfumes now. Um, so. I think love is always conjoined with these kind of sometimes nauseating or sick ideas. Um, so, oh, love like a screaming flower. Again, that is a very jarring line, really, to to have in the song. So it's it's an interesting meditation on, on love. And I think, I mean, in terms of its the sound quality, it did start off as quite a simple song. But then apparently it was all the rearrangement. I'm not sure exactly who did it, whether it was Lamoire or Flood. But it sounds brilliant. And that second verse when the guitar kind of shimmers over 
over the verse it almost sounds a bit like Johnny Marr um, the yeah. kind of effects it almost sounds a, a bit you know how soon is now well I think they were, they didn't want to ignore all that you know huge Manche- uh, Manchester movement mm. at that point um, but they certainly wanted to pr- progress it there, there are times not not really on this album but on Zeropa where um, they sound a little like the Stone Roses or they're, they're at least answering to, to the Stone Roses and all those take me hires sounds a lot like you know the the general kind of yeah uh, you know sort of piano riff orientated tracks where you have high pitched you know take me higher type vocals. Yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting that all this was happening, and then you have you two who were doing their own thing, but it's, they, they weren't just rebelling against who they were; they were rebelling against what every everyone else was doing as well, hmm. which is a lot of pressure to put on yourselves. Well, I think the the overall the overall image I get, and obviously this is reinforced by the album art, is of a kind of collage of just the fact that you two were now. It wasn't this kind of stark one idea, a spotlight on edge, rattling hum type feel. It's now just you two picking lots and lots of different things and throwing everything in the mix. So mm. I think everything's up for grabs. Everything you can you can use, you can play with, and again that that sense of play I think is really important on this album. Yeah. Get your axe out, Tyler. It's time to chop down the Joshua tree. With the fly. How do you feel about this song? The lead single from Acton Baby. Um, This is going to be really controversial, I know. Um, Go on. I'm getting my axe out. While I like this song... Because it's great, yes, carry on. It does seem like a bit of a throwaway. Great in terms of the album but I'm not really bothered about it in any other sense. Hmm. Um, I'll just process that for a minute or two. Great lyrics. And um, there's a palpable excitement uh, within the sound from the band uh, that you can hear in this song. It sounds sounds like they're really enjoying themselves and it sounds like they're enjoying uh, the innovation and this new sounding U2. Sounds like they're all on board. I know you said they uh, Bono and Edge had a hard time convincing Larry and Adam that this is what they should be doing, but on uh, on this track particularly, they are all evidently having a good time. Yeah, I, I think it was only those earlier stages when there was that sense of, okay, what is you two going to be now? And you have Bono and Edge pulling in one direction and Larry and Adam either wanting to stay doing what they're doing or simply just not knowing what this new sound was meant to be yeah but by this point they're all on board and having fun the video for this you can tell it's a lot of fun this is where bono famously puts together and unveils the fly this identikit rock star i love the idea of the fly um and i i i I like that character and i love that you two began to introduce these characters like the fly like uh mr mcfisto like disco ball mm. man mr. Oh, McFisto Mir- is a less successful mirror ball man not a disco ball man uh, <laughs> mirror ball man and and others would arrive later on in mm. in pop and uh the vertigo tour i'd like that i love that that i'm really taking advantage of the stage show and, and it being a show not being a concert yeah that, I think that's a very interesting distinction. So there's a lot of great things that did come from this song, but it, in terms of the song itself, uh, 
But see, this I, is the I song that I don't know. Where, I don't know where I put it. I don't know where I put it. So you put it in the CD player and turn it up to eleven. <laughs> why? Why are you still using a really old CD player? Because I'm trying to capture the feeling I'm, of the '90s. I mean, my CD player goes up to at least twelve. Right. Okay. <laughs> so this song is, for me, the thing which you can say is the centerpiece of the album. This is. This is what sums up Acton Baby for me. And if you put it next to some of the older songs, well, I say older, even songs, you know, from two years previously or so on Rattle and Hum. This is, you know, listen to the solo. It's got so much electricity and vitality and life. And it's all about texture. I'm talking about guitar texture. You're just looking over and not mean not paying attention. No, I was burping, but I was trying not to do it into the <laughs> microphone. So I okay, the, I thought I, I was burping in a way that I've never burped before in my life. Well, talk about innovation. But I think <laughs> I think I, I was worried that I was boring you with guitar rambles. But the the this guitar solo here is is I never get tired of hearing it. It's so good. And then to just the, the the conception of the song is so interesting. It's it's a phone call from hell from someone who is actually quite happy about being there, and that's why the distorted voice comes through with Bono. I mean, that's the way I see it. And he's spouting out all these aphorisms, one of which you uh, quoted on the back of a picture of Bono that you once painted for me for my birthday. Yes, I did. Every yeah. artist is a cannibal, which I remember fondly whenever I listen. I listen to this song. You um, don't remember it fondly enough to uh, move it into your house. Well, I don't want to, you know, wreck it by putting it on display and exposing it to sunlight. I mean, you know, it's a very delicate piece of art. Where is it right now? I, I don't know. It's in. The... It's not on the wall, is it? I don't think so. I don't know. It might be on a wall. I mean, it deserves preservation above all, rather than display. <laughs> but it's not being preserved, is it? It's going to be under some tat. It's time will come. Back to the fly. Uh, the only thing I want to say about this is... Bono, when he discusses this song, talks about using a kind of musical judo. So he talks about the fact that everyone was saying you two are pompous. Or, you know, we give this impression that everyone hated you two. Rattle and Hum massively sold and, you know, people, a lot of people were still massively convinced by them as a band. But he took all of the criticism that was coming from... Um, There's a difference between being popular and being liked. That's true, yeah. And, yeah... And they were they were everywhere, but also being slated by a lot of um, you know kind of music critics who just didn't like what they were doing. So Bono took all of their attacks and tried to turn them back, you know, on themselves and on the critics. You know, let's be pompous. Let's start spouting lots and lots of different potentially contradictory, aphoristic, you know, grand statements about what art is, and that's what makes this song work so well for me. I also love that bit right at the end where he's saying, look, i got to go, yeah, I'm running out of change. There's a lot of things if I could, I'd rearrange. Because this is a rare moment when Bono being less specific, being quite vague, I mean, there's a lot of things if I could, I'd rearrange. That's the last thing that the song finishes on. What does that mean? What are all the different things that that could mean? There's a lot of things. What What is he talking about? Is he talking about rearranging the band? Is he talking about rearranging relationships? I think he's like you know being a more uh it's more of a summarization of like you know in, in the late eighties where they would really get um get in uh knee deep with political issues or religious issues and mm. just things that were going on in the world uh well 
while you two have changed the direction quite drastically, Bono, I think, is is saying, look, I'm still like that and I still care, but right now I'm being a rock star and I'm I'm doing what I'm paid to do, rather than you know mm. just abandoning everything. It's just it's just a little clue that you know he still cares about that. There's a lot of things. If I could, I'd rearrange. It's just that's still the. That's an interesting him. interpretation. I've, I've not really thought about it like that, that. That's still the within him, but right now the focus is on something else. Okay, so you join me back in the review studio, and I must start with an apology. Uh, we're about to review Mysterious Ways, but Johnny's not here at the minute. Oh, wait, he's, he's just going back into the studio now, so... Johnny, where have you been? It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. I've just been out for a dive with your sister. In the rain? Yeah. But you're soaking wet. And you, you're covered in dirt. Have you been hey, underground again? My, my, my can, I was eating from that. Yeah. Are you ready to do the podcast now? Ready. So, forgetting about that link, track eight, Mysterious Ways. This song grew from an early draft demo sort of sketch of a song called Sick Puppy, which Edge had recorded using one of these uh, drum machines that he was quite keen on at the time. So he had the bass groove and not really much else apart from him and Bono sort of singing over it. They had a sense of excitement about this song, but it didn't really go anywhere because it isn't yet a song. I thought this song came from uh, uh, Adam. They're all jamming, and Adam had a really good bass line, but they they were struggling to put things to it. Well, I don't know who initially came up with the bass line. I mean, it sounds great on the record, and presumably no, it, that's it, Adam it was, playing it. it was definitely Adam. Okay, well, that makes sense. But I know that it was definitely something that Edge and Bono were feeling more excited about, but in terms of, you know, the direction of the band, because it's, it's, it's totally different. The, the whole kind of, you know, process, drum loops, it sounds a lot more groovy, a lot more dance-orientated. Well, I think this is one of the rare, uh, rare times in U2's career where Bono and Edge have been trying to um, adjust to um, something that they really enjoyed from Adam. I think a lot of the time... Bono and the Edge come up with the initial ideas of a song, and then Larry and Adam have to kind of, you know, fall in line with that and and provide a baseline worthy of it or provide drums worthy of it. But this time it was Adam who came up with with a baseline, and the rest of the band wanted to uh, create something that uh, uh, create a song worthy of that baseline. Mm. Uh, it doesn't stand out to me to be one of his best. Bass lines, but it's good. Oh, I think it's amazing. It's really good, but it like it doesn't. It wouldn't make your top five or ten or anything. I, I really don't think Mysterious Ways would make my top twenty U two songs. I meant no. I'm, I'm really I mean, not a big fan of this song. But I meant the bass line specifically because I I really like the bass line. I like it's kind of it's got a sense of swagger about it. I would say it kind of ambles around in a really confident way. But yeah. I was listening to this. I listened to the album on a on a train, which. Again, is appropriate. I like the fact that I, you know, listening to this song and this album on transport works for me. But I thought it was interesting that I was sat there, and there's that moment when 
you know, halfway through the song, the bass kind of cuts out and then it comes back in and I was really into it and enjoying it and maybe feeling a little bit groovy myself. And then I looked up and all the other passengers just looked miserable. I mean, I don't know what's going on in their lives, but the I, disjunction I, I don't know how many clear. of our listeners know what you look like, but you're pretty much the least groovy man I've ever seen. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with that. Yeah. This is a groovy song. It is, it is a groovy song. And it's just one of those songs I've never really found... Uh, found any peace with, uh, and I, I think I have a problem with the singles on 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 Acton Baby as a, as a whole, apart from who's going to ride your wild horses. You you think this is a bad choice of single? Yeah. Wow. I think I think it's pretty. It's great if um the whole album sounded like this, but the whole album doesn't sound like this. I don't think it sticks out that much. I mean, it is much more. I mean, it, you need to have some because it's kind because of, it's kind of a one and done sound, never to be repeated. I don't understand why it's a single. Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, there isn't really that sound from Edge anywhere else. It's a very particular sound, but I think it's good because it, you know, it brings a bit of brightness and happiness and groove to the to the album, and this to me is where that narrative starts to actually work about you know the album being about a, a big night out and then the hangover so the fly to me is the beginning that's the initial craziness of entering the city um getting you know uh, into some gritty and grimy bars this song mysterious ways for me is about hours and hours spent dancing that kind of thing and then the next song is where we get to you know a more hungover state so i think it works in that sense and this song is this album is sorry is very dark in places. So do you not think this adds a lot of joy to the album? No, I just don't get it. The, no, um, no, it's just not one of my favourite tracks. Never has been. The, there is a <clears throat> on the Slain DVD, which is one of my favourite live shows. There is an extra track of Mysterious Ways, um, which I have never watched because I don't care. <laughs> I love it live. I think it works so well live, especially with Edge shuffling across the stage while he's doing the solo. That's one of my absolute highlights of Pop Mart. Yeah, doesn't do it for Tyler. Trying to throw your arms around the world. So this to me is one of the ultimate hangover songs. It's got a warmth to it. It's got a kind of daybreak feel to it. The bass comes in and almost seems to embrace you. Um, and I think it just captures a lot of hungover. <laughs> You're looking at me very oddly, Tyler. You don't think the bass hugs you? I was looking at my notes and I thought you'd put a word in in my notes to make me laugh when I, I was reading I them. I do not tamper with other presenters' notes. Okay, so what I meant to put in my notes was um, a really fun song to sing, right? Yeah. But what I've put is really fun song tossing. Well. <laughs> so which is when I saw it, like, just made me laugh. But the bass. The bass, yes, um... One of the one of the best things about this song, I think it was actually written about or by Adam. He was doing a lot of partying then, definitely. Um, and remember this having something to do with Adam. I think he actually may have contr contributed a lyric or uh, all the lyrics, which you don't get many writing credits by Adam. But well, it's very the lyrics are very surreal, aren't they? I always thought it said, 
we, he took an open top cathedral through the eye of a needle. Yeah. How do you hear that line? I thought it was open top cathedral through the eye of a needle. Yeah. Well, maybe it is, but on online and in all the places I'm looking, it says uh, open top beetle, which is less interesting unless it's a real beetle, as in the animal. Or, or Paul, Paul McCartney. McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> or Angela Lansbury as uh, a I can't remember which American TV host. Um, but he, 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 I think it was Craig Ferguson kept doing gags about um, Paul McCartney and went, have we got a picture of Paul McCartney and then showed a picture of Angela Lansbury and the two do look there very, is, yeah, very, there is a very similar um, um, back to the song um, I, I love this song um, it's very ironic that a song about a hangover is so fun to sing when drunk It's if you have ever sung this song drunk it's not one that I would naturally go to, but I, I think it would be fun to sing. I mean, the thing is, being hungover is often you're still a little bit drunk, so the, the two states are not completely different. Yeah. I think it's just that this is... You get the... the You can feel the light coming up over the city as you, as you hear this, this song. And I think what it does is it captures all the different weird emotions that are built into a, a hangover. So... There is that kind of dread, that feeling of oh, what has happened, you know, over the course of the fly in mysterious ways, that kind of thing. But then there's also that need for comfort there as well, you know, gonna run to you, run to you. Um, and I, I just I can't think of a song that encapsulates a particular type of hangover better. There's a certain echoing of Joshua Tree in this song. Um, this 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 album doesn't harken back too much to the previous albums, but that run to you, run to you. Uh, reminds reminds yeah. me of running to stand still, um, and I want to run. Yeah, fine. <laughs> I'm not just on about the word run uh, oh, in terms okay. of melody yeah, and uh, the way the music is structured. Mm. I, I'm reminded of running to to stand and there's, still. And we run, you know, it runs like a river, that like that. Is that what you're getting at? <sighs> and they he runs into the arms of America as well on Bullet the Blue Sky. Yes, yeah. Bono <laughs> Bono sings about running a lot. Okay, so Johnny, I'm going to take this one, if that's okay with you. Um, the next song is Ultraviolet, which may be the best U2 song of all time. Um, controversial. In my opinion. I don't think that's controversial at all. I've spoken to a lot of uh, U2 fans. This is, a, this is an epically good song. I don't think there was a song that they revived like in at the 360 period. They revived, started to revive a lot of songs, and 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 they continued that in Songs of Innocence. Uh, mm. as, well, the, the tour, including one of my favorite, well, my favorite, The Unforgettable Fire. Yeah, w- w- that went down very well. Uh, um, uh, but what was really good about the night we saw the 360 tour was they played your favorite song and my favorite song. Mm. That's really quite a special night for us both. The fact that 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 happened and it was just so good to see them play those songs so many years after i mean 20 plus years yep. i mean 25 years for unforgettable fire and about uh 18 years for ultraviolet light and a bit weird because this wasn't a single like unforgettable fire this wasn't yeah. a, a title track this is right at the back of acton baby and it's it's just it's so good it's a song about feeling lost uh would you say this is a simplistic song or not? In terms of lyrics or in terms of... Uh, to play, if you're going to sit down to play this song. Well, it's. It, I actually 
did try the other day to uh, look at an acoustic version and obviously that introduction is quite difficult because it's very free in its structure it's in free time as it's, far as i can it's tell. very hinged on the bass oh when it actually kicks yeah. in then yeah it's not incredibly difficult to play but the thing is with edge it's not about difficulty it's about getting that sound no i'm I, i'm talking about the, like the simplicity of it is probably what makes there's a lot of big experimental songs with you know new gadgets that they've discovered and yeah uh, and this stands out because it's a song that you can actually just sit there and play and sing and ha- you know and enjoy. The lyrics are fantastic. It's easy to ignore Adam's bass line and focus more on Edge's uh, little you know flourishes here and there. Mm. But it's the bass once you listen to it that that really solidifies the momentum of the song. It's kind of like a spine running through. Mm. Um, the Bono sounds so effortless like yeah. he, he reaches all those falsetto notes really easily um and and i'm gushing with this song because it i do think it, this is either one or two I, I have i have real trouble yeah um bringing it down to that that which gets the top spot well i was gonna say I, I, when i said it was a controversial choice before um i i this for me would either be would it be in my top five definitely favorite U two songs of all time? It's brilliant. I think it's a song that we've kind of uh, we've always you know we really enjoyed listening to it at the same kind of time. We've played this together as well. Yeah, but I think the only reason I was saying it was controversial before is just because people don't know the song as well. But it's a real two, fan favorite. I think U two fans. I mean, oh, yeah, proper. Are we, we are talking about after the Joshua Tree. This is like the, the, the probably the next important album. In, in terms of the general consensus of things, this is a really a big, successful, important album that you know where they're experimenting and mm. you know having fun. So this is a a real good song on a on a very well received album. So I don't I don't think it's as hidden as as you may think. Okay, fair enough. Um, my question would be: If this is your favorite song, and this I encountered the difficulty, That's or one of your favorites, one, one of your favorites, okay. Yeah. But even even so, even if it's your top five, I find it difficult to encapsulate precisely what it was about the Unforgettable Fire, or is rather about the Unforgettable Fire, that makes it that special to me. Can you describe the feeling of this song uh, and what it means to you? Yeah, there's there, there's a relatability to it. Um, everyone's you know like had down periods in their life and you know low mood periods in their life. This song just uh, you don't have to necessarily be in that mood, but you just have to have experienced uh, uh, just the sense of not knowing where you're going in life and uh, you know asking questions you know like is you're in a place where you're so you, you know you're so low that you, you just you want someone to reach out and help you you know like mm-hmm. uh, you know the whole idea of uh light my way and it's it's just again i'm gushing but it it's you understand the feeling when you have been there yeah and then when you play this song it's like oh god you don't have to be in that place but you've been there and you understand and there's so much vulnerability. I really like it when Bono lets himself be vulnerable. And on this album particularly, it's it's great because he's really um, challenging that uh, idea of a rock star and you know allowing himself to be perceived in different ways. Yeah. Uh, but this is just sheer naked vulnerability of like I'm still just I may be in in the world's most successful rock band at this point, 
but I'm still just a guy who, you know, has feelings and goes through the emotions like everybody else. This song is asking questions um, for help and guidance, um, not to a god either. There's no, I don't think there's, you can probably see some religious symbolism in this song, but it's not about religion. That's not the be all and end all. No, it's not. It's not as nakedly religious and Christian in its in its mood. I'm sure, as we've said, it could apply to that, and it could be read like that. But there is a move away on on this whole album from that. I think what you're saying there about vulnerability is interesting as well. And maybe it's just because I've been looking at the band and the the making of the record. But when he's saying, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't know. Sometimes, you know, he's talking about checking out. It seems to be a song about crisis and about putting back together after there's been this, you know wanting for everything to go a bit wrong basically and to me i i just see that as something that speaks to the concerns of rattle and hum and the kind of changes that the band was going through so when we move from that that kind of synthy phase at the start of the song to this really jubilant guitar riff that's when it, obviously it kicks in and you get this huge surge so acting baby is born of that putting together process and that's what makes it really interesting to me yeah, so my final word is this is either number one or number two of my favourite U2 songs of all time. Acrobat. Now, this is one of my favourite moments on the album. I think it's such a great song. And as a lot of U2 fans will know, this is a song which isn't played live. Um, I think it had existed in sound checks and things like that. Someone can probably correct me on the precise details, but it's a song that they just don't play live. Um, That's anymore. a calling for all the two anoraks out there. Mm. Please get in touch. So, Edge basically said that when looking back on this in U2 by U2, Edge talks about the fact that this song has quite a lot of venom in it, and he said that he made this odd statement that it's not what people come to a U2 show for. I think the the song was a bit too dark in places, a bit too angry. Even though Bono and Edge in that book say this is one of their favourite songs or one of their favourites off the album, and that, I'm sure, like everyone, you know, their opinion changes on their own work quite a lot. But it just seems so strange because it's such an interesting song. It's got a really interesting rhythm. It's a very non-standard drum beat for Larry. It's definitely not 4-4, which is what your standard rock rhythm is. You've got this swooping bass all the way through it. Edge is using... He's throwing the kitchen sink at this song. You know, it's yeah. it's amazing. Um, I see this as Ultraviolet Part 2. Um, if Ultraviolet is asking for help, then Acrobat is the answer. It's kind of the, the brushing yourself off, kind of don't let the bastards grind you down, do your own thing. Mm. And it's kind of... I think this is a very positive message, and it's it's a pretty beautiful song. So maybe I disagree with Edge there. I don't see the venom. If there's a, if if there's a ven if there's any venom in it, it's um, it's inspirational venom rather than a poisonous venom. But do you, do you not find that the lyrics? So when he's saying, um, "I joined the movement. If there was one, I could believe in. I break break bread and wine. If there was a church, I could receive in." Hmm. To me, this is a song about being quite lost and confused. In the same way, I I, th I think it does work well with Ultraviolet. But yeah, this is this is one of the few times in U2's albums where you know, not that I have a I have a problem with how things are placed, but this is utterly perfect. The hmm. the, the transition from Ultraviolet into uh, Acrobat 
it works. That's two parts of a, of a story. And how satisfying as well as an album to... I mean, you two often, in certain albums, which we'll come to, have a lot of great songs at the start, and then perhaps the second half is a lot weaker. How great that... And this was always a thing that made Acton Baby, you know, stand out to me. It starts off so well with all these big songs, you know, singles, hits, that kind of thing. And then it just keeps getting better and better. The second half of the album is actually more deep and complex and interesting. It has everything. So yeah, I, I, I prefer the second half of the album. Yeah. And I never want to skip any of this. I never It never gets to the three-minute mark or four-minute mark and I'm getting bored because the energy keeps up, the guitar's interesting. All I'm completely entertained when I listen to this. Yeah, exactly. It, it's enthralling in the, the kind of sense that you get watching a blockbuster you know, where you're completely immersed in the film mm. and completely immersed in this album, particularly this latter part of the album. Yeah, and I think what happens here is you have resilience sitting side by side with self-doubt. So Bono here, the persona that he's playing with, is riddled with self-doubt and riddled with self-criticism. You know, he's, he's speaking one way, then acting the other way. And it's about that contradictory feeling that exists in people. And yet you have, don't let the you know, don't let the bastards grind you down. So, yeah, I think it works what, what you were saying before about this being a, quite an inspirational song as well at the end of the day. I just wish they'd play it live. Yeah, I'd really love to see this live as well. Lads, get on it! And now, finally, the last track on the album, Love is Blindness. I think we can both agree this is a, a beautifully dark love song. When I was listening to this, I, I wrote a little bit of poetry. You've already heard some of my poetry on this podcast, but the drums are like bullets being fired into the heart of love. Mm. Okay, well, it's not meatballs, but it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's not gravy. Um, well, I've got a question written down, prepared for you, Tyler, which is, do you like that the album ends on this track? Yeah, it works really well. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's such a interesting choice because... Yeah, interesting. Not inappropriate, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because what you would expect is something a bit more um, 40-ish or Mothers of the Disappear-ish. I like the fact that this album doesn't wrap up everything. It's an unflinching look at love at the end of the album. I mean, you could. I mean, if the if the album ended on Acrobat, that would also have been good. It would have been a different feel. But yeah, that is... was something I thought. Mm. If Love Is Blindness came after Trying to Throw Your Arms Around the World, then you had Trying to Throw Your Arms Around the World, Love Is Blindness, Ultraviolet, Acrobat. Possibly would have sounded a little bit better. But I don't know if Acrobat is what you want to end on. I like I like the fact that this is a lot more dark and meditative and. <sighs> It, it's it's this, the imagery is full of kind of of death and love and politics. It's such an odd. I mean, so for example, what I'm talking about there is ostensibly you've just got you know this idea of someone being sad about about the ending of a relationship. And I'm glad that all the way through this we've not constantly kept re referring back to Edge's divorce because although that's an interesting element on this album, um particularly in the sort of anger of Edge's playing, it's good to not just keep boiling it down to that. So in that image of you see um, the parked car um, on a crowded street, you get in not just love, but also, you know, the spectre of death, of bombs, that kind of thing in this in this, in this this song. It's such an interesting... It's good. You can tell that they... 
they don't forget about that. They don't really forget where they come from. They they still have that uh, on their conscience. Um, And this song encapsulates all all those uh, weird uh, and kind of awkward feelings, you know, about two people who don't necessarily believe the same and Mm. don't necessarily look at the world the same, but they're blinded by this one love between them and that is the unity that they have whereas everything else about them is is different see for me it the obviously it gives rise to lots of different interpretations but for me the message that i got from the song is that if you want to be in love in a you know in in what we call a loving relationship that necessarily involves being blind to things you know you've got to you can't have everything you can't know this person in this open you know naive you know jubilant loving sort of way you have to actually be blind and turn a blind eye to a lot of the the horrible things about being in a relationship about the other person uh, and it's just such an an interesting song to 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 end with it's a million miles away from the 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 u2 songs that deal with love so far i mean something like all i want is you it's totally different it's a totally different feeling and the production mimics i don't that. think there's a standard finish to a u2 album so no it... no it's not as if they they've try, ever tried to go out in a big bombastic way. They normally try to start like that, but mm. um, no, I have no problem with this. Uh, this being the last track on the album, it's just in, a joy to listen to. Mm. And I'm preaching to the converted here, but the version <laughs> um, the version of Edge playing this on his own uh, that you can find on YouTube is brilliant. It's such an interesting revisiting of the, of the song, and to see it stripped down to an acoustic guitar. Very few effects. It's, it's brilliant. Okay. That was... Actong! Baby. Actong baby. So, Johnny, uh, everybody... Well, not everybody's favourite feature, but everybody's second favourite feature. Is this a flipping album? This is not only a flipping album. It is my very favourite album of all time. I didn't say that at the start of the podcast, but this is a collection of songs which fit together so well, I wouldn't cut any of them. I wouldn't order it in a different way. I get such an interesting feeling throughout this album that somehow, maybe it's because of Ultraviolet or the album art or something like that, or it just feels all blue and black and purple and of the grime and the glitz of the city and neon lights and Berlin and culture and it's it's my favourite album. It's so good. It may be the most consistent album I have to... Uh, War, though. War is... I, I think they're both as consistent, but I, War's I, not as interesting. I, well, maybe War for you isn't as, as much uh, the kind of music you're interested in. Perhaps. Um, I mean, but I'm yeah, an, it's, it's an album. So. I certainly see this as as a as a complete album. Really, really uh, enthralling stuff. Um, high quality rock and roll. Uh, so it's flipping album status is confirmed. It, it absolutely. Okay, now it's time for everybody's favorite feature. Debatable. It's time for everybody's sweetest thing and dirty day. So let's go to the jingle. It's the sweetest thing, yeah. Okay, a, a arguably xenophobic Berlin accent, but we'll move on from that swiftly. Um, 
What's yours, Tyler? What's your sweetest thing? My sweetest thing is Ultraviolet. My sweetest thing on this listen was Acrobat. Dirty Day! So Bowie's back from Hansa Studio to uh, do the Dirty Day thing. And my Dirty Day is... Well, I almost said I'm not picking a dirty day for this in protest because you I'd, have to. Yeah, I know, I know. That those, would be that would be unfair. Those be the rules. Yeah. So, uh, so cruel is my dirty day, purely because I I just it adds a lot to the album. But there are other songs like uh, Wild Horses that deal with kind of similar topics. But it's it's very difficult to say out of a you know out of a, an album that's full of ten out of ten songs. This is a nine and a half. My Dirty Day is Mysterious Ways. Ooh. I've never had any love for the song. It's okay, it's good, but I, I, I don't care for it. Well, it would be interesting, as always, Someone to... tells you I care for it, they're lying, don't believe them. Hmm? <laughs> it would be interesting, as always, to see what other people think. What's your sweetest thing? What's your Dirty Day? Obviously, we're sharing opinions, but we'd like to hear yours as well. Uh, yep, yeah, uh, you can leave comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Facebook. Yes, please rate and review. Even if it just takes a second, it would be really great to hear what you think or if you can just leave a rating. Obviously, be honest. and uh... Yeah, be honest. Give us a five-star rating. <laughs> At this point, I think all that's left to say is thank you very much for uh, rejoining us on our journey from innocence to experience and coming with us to season two. We will be back next week with Zuropa. But for now, please continue to follow us any way you can. Please continue to comment and tell us your thoughts. We're really, really loving the feedback. Johnny, any last comments? All I have to say is, I'll be the same, and we'll see you on Europa. Goodbye, y'all. Act on. Bye-bye. Hi there, thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us on facebook.com forward slash review2-2u or on soundcloud.com forward slash review2 or search for the Review 2 podcast on iTunes. You can also email us at review2contact at gmail.com. Please like, comment and subscribe. Thank you.